Good morning, brothers and sisters. We're glad that you can join us this morning at our 11 o'clock worship service. And we thank you for coming with a spirit of worship and a spirit that desires to honor and worship God. I can feel it this morning. And may the Holy Spirit move mightily this morning. This week, I came across a moving story of a Japanese Akita dog named Hachiko. Hachiko's owner, a man by the name of Uno, brought this dog to Tokyo in 1924. And every day when he left for his teaching job by train, Hachiko would stand by the door and watch him go. Then at 4 p.m., this Akita dog would arrive at Shibuya Station to meet his owner. Among the throngs of people who would get off the train, he would look for his owner. And there, when he found him, they would accompany one another back home. This went on for about a year until unexpectedly Uno died of a stroke while at work. He never came home. But this Akita dog, Hachiko, continued to return to the train station at 4 p.m. every single day, searching for his owner's face amidst the slew of passengers getting off the train. Noticing that there was a dog, an Akita dog is quite a large dog, who would come at 4 p.m. every day to look for his master, the station master made a bed at the station and began leaving him bowls of food and water. Hachiko returned to the train station every day for 10 years until he died in 1935. To recognize this dog, and more importantly, the loyalty that he had demonstrated, Shibuya Station installed the bronze statue of Hachiko. And if you were to go today to Shibuya Station in Tokyo, you may find it odd to see a bronze statue of a dog. But now you know why it is there. It is there to recognize the loyalty of a dog to his master, but more importantly, the very characteristic of loyalty. I'm sure you've heard lots of stories of dogs loyal to their master to the very end. You've even heard of stories of dogs guarding the gravesite of their deceased owner for days on end without any food. And as I read these stories, I wonder to myself, if only we can exhibit the very same type of loyalty to one another and to our Lord. Well, this morning as we continue our series entitled David, A Man After God's Own Heart, we've been looking at what qualities constitute a heart for God. We will see this week that a heart for God is characterized by a heart of loyalty. A heart of loyalty. Loyalty is one of those characteristics we so value and we so respect, but we simply don't practice it. For many of us, it's this vague concept. And for the majority of us, we have a skewed view of what loyalty is. There are many who believe that loyalty is blindly standing by a family member, even if they do something that's wrong. We say we do it because of loyalty. For some, it's doing something for someone else because they have done something for you. And therefore you say, I am loyal to that person. 
But what does loyalty really look like, especially in the biblical context? Because there's a difference between biblical loyalty and how the world defines loyalty. Let's take a look. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like to encourage you to turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 20 as we take a look at verses 1 to 42. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 1 to 42. Again, if you're new to the Bible or you're new to the faith, the book of 1 Samuel is after the book of Joshua, Judges, Ruth in the Old Testament, and then we get to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 1 to 42. In this passage, we're going to focus more on the actions of Jonathan, Saul's son, and his friendship with David. But the very principles of loyalty we draw out through the life of Jonathan can be found in the life of David as well. David, like Jonathan, cultivated a heart of loyalty. As we begin our study in chapter 20 of the book of 1 Samuel, we find out that David is now quickly realizing that his life is very much in danger. Saul's jealousy and paranoia leads him to try to murder David on at least three occasions, as recorded in chapter 19. In each of these assassination attempts, David is able to escape by the grace of God. Even in the midst of these tragic attempts on David's life, David and Jonathan continue to develop a very deep friendship. So as we begin chapter 20, we find that David has escaped to Ramah, if you remember the hometown of the prophet Samuel. And there he meets David. Look at verse 1. Then David fled from Naioth in Ramah and went and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? David is unsure as to what he's done to deserve the persecution of Saul. His questions are indicative of a man wondering, is there any possible way for reconciliation? David basically asks Jonathan, how do I solve this issue with your father? Look at verse 2. So Jonathan said to David, By no means you shall not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing, either great or small, without first telling me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. Jonathan is trying to grasp, and perhaps a bit unbelieving, that his father would really try to kill David. And he tells David, you have nothing to worry about. My father tells me everything. David begs to differ. Look at verse 3. Then David took an oath again and said, Your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your eyes. And he says, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. David tells Jonathan, I'm sorry, Jonathan. Your dad doesn't tell you everything because he knows you and I are friends. Now, how in the world does David know this? Well, if you remember from two weeks ago, David has cultivated the admiration and the admiration and the friendship of those in the royal courts because he lived a life of trust and he lived life wisely. 
There would have been many in the courts of Saul who would have told David of this truth that not everything is told to Jonathan because of their friendship. David proclaims that my life is very fragile. It's on the cusp of death. Jonathan responds in verse 4, and what you have here in verse 4 is an amazing statement by Jonathan. So Jonathan said to David, Whatever you yourself desire, I will do it for you. Many of you have read this passage before, but this week this verse jumped out at me. Whatever you, David, desires, I will do it for you, even if it entails going against my father's wishes. You see, Jonathan is willing to turn his back on his father's loyalty so that he can be loyal to David. He is willing to give up familial loyalty to be loyal to a friend with whom he has no blood relation. If in the same situation, would you be willing to do the very same thing? Why would Jonathan give up loyalties to his own blood-related father? What is the basis of Jonathan picking David over his father? It is simply because David is innocent, but Saul is not. You see, what we see here, as we draw out from this first principle is that Jonathan is siding with the side of what is right. Sides with what is right. You know, we'll often say, blood is thicker than water. As if to justify and to say that we must always side with family members, even if they are wrong, simply because they are related to us by blood. Nowhere in the Bible does it teach that. In fact, the Bible tells us we are to rebuke, we are to correct, even those who are the closest to us with love and grace. And herein lies the first principle of biblical loyalty. If you're taking notes, number one. Biblical loyalty is siding with what is right. Biblical loyalty is siding with what is right. When we talk about loyalty in the biblical context... It is not one of blind loyalty. It is not a loyalty that you simply go along because of relationships by virtue of blood or something else. Biblical loyalty is a loyalty that always sides with what is right and does what is right, regardless of who are the people involved. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell us we are to side with family when they do wrong. In fact, we have a responsibility to do what is right and to side with friends or authorities over family we know that are doing wrong. Now think about the implications of what I've just said. You are always to side with what is right. How many of you, how many of us would be willing to turn in family members to the authorities knowing that what they are doing is wrong. I never said it was easy. I'm simply laying out for you the foundation of what the Bible tells us is biblical loyalty. There are great implications if we want to say we are to be loyal. I'm reminded of a story of the German pastor Martin Neimoller. 
Neumoller was imprisoned by Hitler in World War II for eight years. He spent some time in prisons and concentration camps, including the terrible concentration camp at Dachau. But Hitler, a strategic man, realized that if Neumoller, who was a World War I hero, could be persuaded to join the Nazi cause, then much of the opposition would collapse. So he sent one of Neumoller's former friends to visit him and try to convince him to join the Nazis. This friend himself had turned to support the Nazis as well. Seeing Neumoller in his prison cell, the one-time friend is reported as saying, Martin, Martin, why are you here in prison? What are you doing here? To which he received from, Nine, from Neumoller the response, My friend, my friend, why are you not here with me? The implications of biblical loyalty run deep into the lives that we live. Loyalty is never, never a justification for you to sin or for you to cover sin or to cover up sin. It doesn't matter who has done it. Biblical loyalty always sides with what is right. Let's move on. In verse 5 to 10, and I wish we had time to go through each of these verses, but would you take time this week to really read again this chapter? But in verses 5 to 10, David tells Jonathan that he's going to miss an important festival meal hosted by King Saul. And by missing the meal, it would be a test to see if there was a possible way for David to be reconciled with Saul. If David is missed, which he surely would be since he was uh, a military commander and he would have a seat in the place of honor, and Saul would ask the people where David would be at, Jonathan would give him an alibi. And whatever the reaction of King Saul would be the indication of the intent of his heart. That was what they had planned. In verses 11 to 17... Before the plan is enacted, Jonathan speaks some wonderful words to David. Follow along as I read. And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So both of them went out into the field. Then Jonathan said to David, The Lord God of Israel is witness. When I have sounded out my father sometime tomorrow or the third day, and indeed there is good toward you, David, and I will not... And do not send to you and tell you, may the Lord do so and much more to Jonathan. But if it pleases my father to do you evil, then I will report it to you and send you away that you may go in safely. And the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. And you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die. But you shall not cut off your kindness for my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. Now Jonathan again caused David to vow because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. As I read these verses, I kept thinking, 
Jonathan is initiating all of these things out of his own will. Jonathan owes David no such favor. Jonathan is in the driver's seat. He is the crown prince. He is in a position of power. He could, by hereditary bloodlines, could be the next king over all Israel. And who doesn't want to be king? And yet, out of under no obligation, in verse 11 to verse 12, Jonathan promises David, I will tell you the intent of my father's will. You know, at any time, Jonathan could have rethought his desire to be king. Jonathan was under no obligation to reveal Saul's true intention, especially if he wanted the kingdom to himself. We also see in verse 13 that Jonathan actually blesses David. Blesses him. May God's blessings be upon you. In verse 14 to verse 15, Jonathan initiates a covenant with David that they would show kindness to one another. In each of these examples, in verse 11 to verse 17, Jonathan initiates an act of loyalty entirely out of his own initiative. David, if you remember, up to this point has done nothing of worth for Jonathan. What did David do for Jonathan? Nothing. He was just a good friend. There is no indication in the biblical text of David giving Jonathan anything, saving his life, and then Jonathan owing him something, maybe introducing Jonathan's wife because uh, Jonathan wasn't looking well. Whatever. There is no indication in the text that Jonathan owes David anything. And yet in verse 17, the Bible tells us they had deep friendship. They had a deep friendship, an emotional tie that was wonderful. It is only because of his loyalty and his friendship to David that he does what he does in these verses. And from the words and the actions of Jonathan, we see another principle of biblical loyalty, number two. Number two, biblical loyalty is built on grace. Biblical loyalty is is built on grace. It's a bit hard to understand, so let me explain it. Grace, as you know, is undeserved favor. When grace is extended to you, you are receiving blessings that you don't deserve. Biblical loyalty is built upon that as the basis of any act of loyalty. You see, we can all earn loyalty from someone by what we give them or what we do for them. If loyalty is given based on what someone has done for you or given you, then you know, my friends, that's not true loyalty. That's simply being indebted to one another. And yet that's what we characterize as loyalty. Think about all of your loyal relationships. It's because someone has given you something or they've done something for you and you owe them one. But biblical loyalty, true loyalty, is when one doesn't deserve anything and you still stand by them. You still have their back. They're with you through the thick and thin of life. They're faithful in the ups and downs of your life. And you are in their life. And not expecting anything in return. Perhaps this example will help. You know, one of the most annoying things for me in the world of sports is what we call bandwagon fans. 
These are people who are only fans of a certain team or fans of a certain player because that team happened to win a championship or is winning or that player is popular. And in the sports world, we call that jumping on the bandwagon. These are people who, if you were to ask them, hey, do you support this team? Absolutely. I've been supporting this team since the day I was born. And yet they never have one of their jerseys or have ever even watched one of their games. They're only supporting a team because they're popular, they're winning. And true sports fans, true loyal fans, dislike these people because they were not there when the team was losing and when the team needed their support. I cannot tell you how many bandwagon Miami Heat fans came out of the closet this year. And next year, it may be the Celtics. I don't know. But these fans change their allegiance every other year, depending on who is winning. And if you ask them, are you loyal? They'll say, absolutely. You know, I was... uh, Wondering who some of the best team sports fans were in the world. There were a lot of lists. But there was a certain team that often came up in many of these lists in the top five. And it's of a baseball team in the U.S. called the Chicago Cubs. These Chicago Cubs fans are some of the craziest, most passionate fans. I know a lot of them. Their games at Wrigley Field is nearly always sold out. And they have fan bases all across the world, right? Here even in the Philippines. With such a large fan base, you would think that they've won championship year after year after year. But if you did a bit of searching, you will find out that the last time they won baseball's World Series was in 1908. More than 105 years have gone by since they've won a championship. And yet you have people supporting them, cheering them on. I can't imagine. Can you imagine cheering for a team that hasn't won any championships for 105 years? I wonder if you would still stick with a team like that. To a small extent, that is a picture of biblical loyalty. Biblical loyalty is giving support when times are tough to someone who's not even popular or deserving You know who your true friends are when they stand by you. Someone has defined a true friend as this. A true friend is the person who rushes in when the world rushes out. It's a good definition. A true friend is a person who rushes in when the world rushes out. Biblical loyalty is always centered and built upon grace. Well, let's continue in verses 18 to 23. Jonathan devises a communication plan for David, who's hiding in a specific field. And there he would receive whether there was hope of reconciliation or not. In verse 19 to verse 29, sure enough, Saul does miss David the first night because he thinks that David is ceremonially unclean. He lets it go. But on the second day, Saul continues to miss David. And he asks Jonathan, where's your friend? Jonathan gives him an alibi. 
And Saul absolutely goes in a rage. Look at his reaction in verse 30 to verse 31. Then Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan. And he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established, nor your kingdom. Now therefore send and bring him to me, for he will surely die. Saul calls the crowned prince, his very own son, some pretty terrible things. One version of the Bible correctly translates what Saul calls Jonathan. And basically, Saul calls his son a bastard, an illegitimate son, a rebel, a traitor. You son of a woman who has rebelled against me, who has sided with someone else. Saul can tell and can see that Jonathan has sided with David. And Saul puts it very clearly for Jonathan. If you let David live, you will never be king. Only one house can survive. One must fall for the other to rise. Saul is the master manipulator. He is pushing the buttons of Jonathan. You've got a choice, Jonathan. If you allow David to live, you will never be king. His kingdom will rise, Jonathan. Ours will not. You and me, we're family. If you let him go, our family's kingdom will fall. Manipulating Jonathan, putting all the pressure on him. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're in a similar situation, would you have second thoughts if it was put to you so bluntly like that? As long as this guy is around, you'll never be on top. As long as you don't win this deal, your company will fall. If this person is here, you will never get promoted, you will never get a raise. If this classmate of yours does well, you'll never be in honors. If it was positioned as such to you, would you still be loyal to that person? Or would you try to subtly sabotage that person's tasks so that you can get ahead? We may not admit it, but the reality is we do. We compete with one another. And we will use passive aggressive means. We will use subtle slice, slander, to break down the character of a person who stands in our way. Saul wanted Jonathan to change his mind. But good for Jonathan. In verse 32 to 34. Jonathan defends David to his father. And he asks him, what has David done wrong? Saul wants nothing of it. And he tries to kill his own son. In verse 35 to verse 40, Jonathan carries out the plan that had been previously discussed. 
and sends a message with arrows to David that warns David, your life is in danger. Here we see the third principle of biblical loyalty. Number three. Biblical loyalty is keeping one's promises. Biblical loyalty is keeping one's promises. Jonathan keeps the promise he makes to David. We have a tough time with promises because they're so easy to make. Because they're simply words. But unless these promises are backed by loyalty, these promises mean nothing. And that's why biblical loyalty is keeping one's promises. It's not keeping them when it's convenient for you. It's not keeping promises when you remember it. It's not keeping promises when you come out on top. It's keeping the very words that you will say. Because you see, Jonathan's ambitions were not the same as Saul's. Jonathan wanted God's will to succeed more than he wanted to become Israel's king. So without thought of his own kingdom, Jonathan keeps his words to David. And by keeping his promise to David, Jonathan lost the kingdom. Can you imagine that? He kept his promise. And we all want the story to end well. But no. He kept his promise and he lost the kingdom. Because at the very foundational root of loyalty is the principle of sacrifice. Loyalty doesn't mean much if you're not willing to sacrifice for he whom you are loyal to. The American president, Woodrow Wilson, said this, Loyalty means nothing unless it has at its heart the absolute principle of sacrifice. Loyalty means nothing unless it has at its heart the absolute principle of sacrifice. When we keep our promises, it will entail in us the decision and the desire to sacrifice. Jonathan kept his word but lost his kingdom. Now that's sacrifice. Look at the poignant moment between David and Jonathan in verse 41 to verse 42. As soon as the lad had gone, David arose from a place towards the south, fell on his face to the ground, and bowed down three times. And they kissed one another, and they wept together, but David more so. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me, and between your descendants and my descendants forever. So he arose and departed. And Jonathan went into the city. I'm sure you've read that passage many a times. A poignant moment. Two good friends wondering if they'll ever see each other again. Did you ever notice or wonder why David cried more? That's what the Bible said. David wept more. I would have thought that Jonathan would have wept more. Jonathan is giving up the kingdom for his friend. He had a lot more to weep about. 
But the Bible tells us David wept more. And as I thought about it this week, it came to me, I know why, I think I know why. David wept more because he knew what was at stake for Jonathan. He knew, perhaps deep down inside, that his friend Jonathan must die. You see, Jonathan cannot live and David to become the rightful heir of the kingship of Israel. David must live, Jonathan must die. And that must have hit David like a ton of bricks. What a friend! So appreciative, the Bible tells us. He bowed his head three times. Jonathan remembers under no obligation to do this for David. But what a friend. What a loyal friend. A friend who keeps his word, but loses his kingdom. But for David, a friend who keeps his word, but must lose his life. As well as I think about it, David must be, uh, Jonathan must be admired. Jonathan said in his own words in verse 42 that his own bond of loyalty to David would never be broken. Jonathan was giving up a kingdom for the love of a friend. And sure enough, Jonathan dies. There are no aspirations that they're going to co rule together. Saul made it very clear to Jonathan, anyone who wants a happy ending is not going to get it because the truth of the matter is the house of Saul must fall for the house of David to rise. It's as simple as that. Jonathan keeps his word to his friend. He keeps his promise. Biblical loyalty is keeping one's promise. We won't have time now, but perhaps also sometime this week, would you take the time to read Second Samuel chapter 9? Would you jump ahead in the narrative of the life of David to Second Samuel chapter 9? He is now king over all Israel. And... Basically, all of the descendants of Saul have been killed. But David remembers his promise to Jonathan. And he asks his court counsel, Are there any more descendants of Saul and Jonathan that I may show kindness to them? Not because I pity them, but because I made a promise to my friend Jonathan. They come back to David and they tell him, There is a man the only surviving descendant of Saul. His name is Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth is alive only because his nurse plotted an escape for him while they were killing Saul's descendants. David said, bring him here. Let me show kindness to him. Decades before, Jonathan had shown kindness to David. David had done nothing to deserve the kindness of Jonathan. And yet, Jonathan extended to him grace, sided with David because he did what was right. 
kept his promise to David. Decades later, David would do the same for a descendant of Jonathan, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth has done nothing to help David become king. He has done nothing to earn the blessings of eating at the king's table. But David does what is right. He extends to Mephibosheth grace, invites him to his own courts to eat at the king's table to the rest for the rest of his life because he will keep his promise as well. We can barely remember a promise a week after we give it. David exemplifies a man who keeps a promise decades after he makes it. And in this act and many others, David exhibits his heart of loyalty. And like the very God who remembers his own promises to us, never for once breaking his promises to us, David and Jonathan have cultivated in their life a heart of loyalty. And that is why David is called a man after God's own heart. When we think of cultivating a heart of loyalty, we think naturally of what God has done. He is the most beautiful picture of what biblical loyalty is. God does what is right because that is His very nature, that is His very character, that is who He is. And He shows loyalty to those who do righteous things and those who do what is just. His loyalty to us is not based on what we've earned or even deserve. His loyalty is based and centered on His grace. Just think about salvation. If there is a man or a woman here this morning who for a minute believes that he is deserving of God's gracious gift of His Son, Jesus Christ, then you are out of your mind. We are deserving of hell. We are deserving of punishment. And yet God, by His grace, extends to us His favor that whosoever will may place their trust in Jesus Christ who died for our sins. His loyalty to us is based on His grace. And He always keeps His promise. He stands by us even when we don't deserve it. He always stands by us. Even when we abandon Him, He is there. He never leaves us nor forsake us. He remembers His promises. In the book of the Revelation, Revelation chapter 4, there is a, a rainbow that surrounds the very throne room of God to remind and to tell us that God is a God of promises. So the question I ask you is, do you reciprocate that loyalty back to Him? It's a hard question now that we understand what biblical loyalty is. I've told you the story before, but I think it's apt to tell it again. It fits right into the message this morning. It's actually the story told by Randy Fries, the pastor of Pantego Bible Church. And he recounts the story. He says, I remember seeing a picture of a husband and wife in a gentleman's office. And I said to him, my friend, you have a nice picture of the both of you here. When I said that, I turned around and looked at the man, and he had tears in his eyes. And so I asked him, 
why are you crying? He said, Pastor, there was a time in our marriage when I was unfaithful to my wife, and she found out about it. She was so deeply hurt and injured that she was going to leave me and take the kids with her. I was overwhelmed at the mistake I had made, and I quickly shut the affair down. I went to my wife in total brokenness. Knowing I did not deserve for her to answer in the affirmative, I asked her to forgive me. And she forgave me. Pastor, this picture was taken shortly after this incident. When I see this picture, I see a woman who forgave me. I see a woman who was willing to stand with me in this picture. When you see this picture, you say, nice picture. When others see it, they say, beautiful picture. But when I see this picture, I see my life given back to me again. When many people see Jesus, they see him as a nice person. They see him as a good moral teacher to give us principles by which to live by. But we need to change that perspective. When we see that picture, we need to see the one who forgave us. The one who stands by us to identify with us when no one else wants to identify with us. Even when we adulterate ourselves before the very things of this world. In the very person of Jesus, we see a picture of loyalty. And so the question I ask you, are you loyal to him? Are you loyal to him? Because when you leave this place this morning, and for every day in this week, the world will call out to you with all of its temptations and its cat's calls, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. It calls us, adulterate yourself. Don't be in a relationship with Jesus. What has he done for you? It's okay. You can have me on the side. Look what I can do for you in your life. You can be rich. You can be famous. You will be well-liked. You will no longer be thought of as a religious fanatic. I'll give you purpose in this life. And it's out there and it's calling to each one of us. No one is exempt from this call. And it's out there on the billboards. It's out there in the advertisement. It's out there in other people. It's out there in the boss. And they're calling you. The world is offering to you every single day. It's offering to you everything. It promises everything, but it delivers nothing. And the world will abandon you and spit you out when it finds another victim who is better looking, who is younger, who is more charming and more eloquent. And it will offer to that person everything and promise them everything but deliver nothing. It boggles the mind how we are willing to give ourselves to the world who has given us absolutely nothing. 
And to our Lord, who has given us everything, his own life, and really expects nothing in return when we come to him in faith, we give nothing. It's a convoluted, messed up world. When we are willing to give everything to get nothing, and to give nothing to him who has given us everything. Why? And that's why we've stressed the heart of loyalty. Because a heart of loyalty is central to the Christian life. It teaches us how to be completely satisfied in Him. Unless you cultivate in your life a heart of loyalty, you will always be looking for something else. You will never be satisfied. You will be drawn away. You see, when I married my wife 10 years ago, and I told her I would be loyal to her until the end, that means I will find in you my total satisfaction. In you, in my wife, I am totally satisfied. And if I am satisfied in you, I will not have to look at another woman or be in a relationship with another woman to find satisfaction. So my loyalty to my wife is not simply, well, when it's convenient, I'll be loyal to you. As long as you're not sick, as long as you give me what I want, I'll be loyal to you. No, it has an underlying foundation. I am completely satisfied in you. And there is no one else that I need to fill the hole in my heart because in you I am loyal. And that works in a marriage relationship. But more importantly, that works in your relationship with your heavenly father. Are you so loyal to him that you are so completely satisfied in him that you do not have to go to the world that promises you everything but delivers nothing to find your purpose in life? The reality is there's so many Christians who say they're loyal to God, but their hearts are itching to try what the world has because they have not found satisfaction in God. I don't believe for a second that Jonathan ever wavered in his loyalty to David. There's no indication of a second thought, a wandering in his Mind, maybe it would be pretty good to be king. Maybe I'll offer some terms to David. I'll be king. He'll be my vice king. Nothing. The rubber hits the road. David stands up. Uh, Jonathan stands up for his friend. He does not waver. And that's a good indication of your spiritual life and where you are. If you are wavering, if you are struggling with the call of the world and the call of our Lord, then you are not yet completely loyal to our Lord. You're not deeply satisfied in Him. You think that there is more to life than being in a relationship with the Heavenly Father who has sent His Son to die in your place to give you purpose and to extend to you grace. I want you to go back home this week and think about that. I want you to go back home and think about where your loyalties lie. Loyalties are not dependent on blood relation. Biblical loyalties do not lie in individuals who have done certain things for you and expect something in return. Biblical loyalty always sides with what is right. 
Biblical loyalty is always centered on grace. Biblical loyalty remembers one's promises. Look to the picture of Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, as the example of biblical loyalty. As he stands by us when we leave him, always, every day, he's always there. Can we not with our life stand with him for once and say, Lord, we're on your side. Let's pray. Father, this morning has been a difficult message to share and to preach because it is so hard and we have failed in so many ways. Forgive us if we only pay lip service to the loyalty we have to you, but we prostitute ourselves to the world. Thank you, as the book of Hosea reminds us, that your unconditional love calls us back to you so that we can stand by you as you've always stood by us. Help us to have a changed perspective of what is loyalty. Help us to always be loyal to you until we see you again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.